Hey, let's open our Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. This is a life-changing book. You know, this book is just incredible. We looked last week about others, talking about others, and J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourselves. We've got to keep the order straight. We've got to keep the, other, the order straight. And he says there, if you have any encouragement, any comfort, any fellowship, any tenderness and compassion, and that's what I heard when Val was talking, those things. I heard those things, and I heard... And I heard, even through the tears, I heard the, the others part, right? That's what I heard. And that's where joy comes from, from Jesus first and then others and ourselves last and, and not being so selfish. And it comes from being united with Christ, it says there in verse 1. Being united with Christ, having a relationship with Him. No room for selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says in humility, in humility, in verse 3, the middle there, consider others better than yourselves. Look, not only, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Put others first. And how do we do that? We have to have it. It's got to be through God's work in us, through our relationship to Jesus. It's not our natural M.O. It's not our natural default. Our default is what? Me. And then we finished there in uh, last week in verse 5. We read verse 5. We didn't talk a lot about it, but look at it. Verse 5. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Some versions say, let this mind be in you which was you know, in Christ Jesus. We, we need to be like him. And we've said that from the very beginning of this book, that that's what he's doing. He's, he's doing this good work. He's, he's began a good work in you, chapter 1, verse 6, and he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, being made more and more and more like Jesus, to be like him. So he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's kind of a current word, attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then if we look at ourselves, we kind of, then we kind of say, whoa, wait a minute, there's not, it's not quite, I don't quite have the same attitude. And he goes on talking about that. But, but this passage here goes back to Jesus again, right? An attitude comes from Jesus. This passage, this particular passage we're going to look at today up to verse 11, where there's two main things in it, really. One is, uh, is who Jesus is. A lot about who Jesus is, and, and the, the, uh, the classes call it Christology, the study of who Jesus Christ is. That's one half of it. The other half, though, is this idea that we're seeing here, and we've been looking at this example that Jesus set for us, his example for us, that would be, that we'd be like him. This word attitude, it just kind of you know, made me think, you know, and, and I looked it up. It says it's direction. It's like the direction of your mind, the direction of your heart, kind of the, the focus, the, the where you're heading. It's the attitude. We kind of think about it differently, but um, when you're talking about aviation, it's got a lot to do with, with aviation as well. Any of you know how to fly planes? Any of you play with computer games that fly planes? Some of you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can have this attitude, this direction where, where it's either selfish and self-centered 
Or we can have an other-centered attitude and it, 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 it's going to determine like where we go, where we end up, how we live. You know, I, I found this, I discovered there's, there's a whole scientific field of study on attitude change. I mean, a whole scientific thing. It's, you know, all kinds of stuff that's all wrapped up in attitude change. Why? Because we need, we need attitude change so often. The direction we're going. And sometimes it's painful. I heard on the radio this morning a gal talking about it, uh, you know, that it's sometimes painful to change attitude, to change direction. But here, this passage saying that our attitude is should be found in humility and to be more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, why don't you turn with me there for a minute, because this idea of attitude and attitude change, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, say, well, I can't change my attitude. I just got a bad attitude, and that's just it. That's, that's the end of it. And nobody really likes me anyway, so why should I care? I'm just going to have a bad attitude. But that's just the way the world is, right? Well, just deal with it. That's the way I am. That's who I am. I got a bad attitude. You would have a bad attitude too if you look like me. And we have all kinds of excuses, right? I got a bad attitude. Well, that's no excuse. That's, that's, just, a, that's just an opportunity for God to do something in your life, in my life. What's the attitude of my heart and my mind? Look at verse uh, 3 in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take, every, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See that there? Is he saying attitudes are cool? No. He's saying we, we, we can do something about it. And we have the power of God in our lives to break these things down, to demolish them. That's a great word, demolish bad attitudes and take captive every thought. We don't have the weapons. We don't use the weapons of the world. We have spiritual weapons. We have the Holy Spirit working within us to do something within us. Now back to this idea of out. Attitude, um, <clears throat> in, in, uh, in aviation, it's, uh, let me just read to you this, uh, what I read. It says, the orientation, attitude in, in aviation is the orientation of an aircraft's axes relative to a reference line or plane such as the horizon. So it's, it's uh, kind of the way this is and the way this is, Right? And there's one more, too, but, but mainly like this, right? You can do that with me. Just everybody do that with me, just so you kind of get the idea. And then, and then it's like this, too, like, whoa. You know, when the airplane does that and you're up in the airplane, you're going, whoa. That's because he's messing with the attitude, right? And all of a sudden, you're hanging onto your seat. He's messing around with the attitude. They also have what's called an attitude indicator, is that something else? They got an attitude indicator right there. They look at it, and it shows them what they need to do. Basically, it's built on, uh, in most cases, a gyro, right? A gyroscope, which 
kind of floats around. I, I'm not going to explain all that, but it it because I don't understand it all, of course. But but they have this gyro and they have this attitude indicator, and and I wonder. I thought about that. I thought, do you and I have an attitude indicator? Do we have this built-in attitude indicator? Do you have an attitude indicator? Do you know, like, when you got a bad attitude? No. I'm not so sure about that. If you're a believer, I think we do have an attitude indicator. It's God's Holy Spirit within us. And, and also the conscience within us that are working, God's Spirit working within us, like, hey, man, what's up with you? You're one of my kids. Hey, what's up with you? You're, you like got this bad attitude. You're bringing everybody around you down. You're affecting everybody else. Not only that, you're affecting yourself with a bad attitude. I think, I think if we're listening for that still, small voice, we'll hear it. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you honestly don't know. But I think you can. If you say, if you ask God, show me what's like... Do I got a good attitude here or a bad attitude? The people, how am I affecting people? How am I affecting myself with my attitude? I read this, that attitude, and this isn't just some positive confession stuff, but attitude determines altitude, right? And when you're flying, that's the case. If your attitude is like this, you're going to go higher. If your attitude is like this, you're going to go lower, right? And, and so <clears throat> it... it it matters what our attitude. He says here, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he gives us a whole passage about Jesus, his attitude, his mind, his, how, he, how he functioned, what he did. One thing I've got to throw in here and kind of throw you all off, though, is, is that in the, in the Scripture we see, this is going to mess you up, understand, and you'll try to be figuring this out the whole rest of the time, but the way up is down. Do you get that? The way up is down. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. In other words, let me read this self-sacrificing humility and love for others. That Christ is the supreme example of humility and selfless concern for others. It's not that, that we're trying to get higher. Actually, we, we need to get lower. We need to humble ourselves. Because when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. That's exactly what happened here with Jesus and his example. He got lower. You say, you need to be building us up. Well, no, we, the truth is we need to be building us down so that God might lift us up. The way up is down. Jesus said, I set you example, an example. I read this to you last time that you should do as I have done for you. And he just got through washing his disciples' feet. He said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you humble yourself and be like a servant, he says, you will be blessed. You will find that joy that comes from him. So verses 6 through 11 now give us again these, these two things about who Jesus is, number one, and about the example of Jesus that he gave for us. Those two things mainly. They think, and, and you see how in most versions it's kind of set apart like a poetry, they think that this possibly was an early Christian hymn where they would actually sing these words. And, and that, again, is, is like the best way to like learn, the best way to remember. Number one, the very first important thing in verse 6, it says, Who, that is Jesus, 
being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The very first thing he talks about here is the the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God the Son. And, And this word, the very nature, means the very essence, the inner essence of the very reality of who Jesus is, being in very nature, the inner essence, reality, is that Jesus Christ is God. You say, well, yeah, I knew that. Well, this is one of the foundational doctrines of, of all the New Testament. And, and this is why we can worship Jesus Christ. This is why we can follow His example, because He is God the Son. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet, but he's God the Son. You say, well, yeah, I know that. But, but the fact of the matter is that, that all around us, it's the supreme error. It is the supreme error. The atheist says that Jesus was just a man if they even believe that he existed and someone didn't just make him up. They believe he's just a man, though he, you know, they might even agree that he was a good philosopher. He had some cool things to say. You know, the golden rule is kind of cool. You know, uh, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, that's kind of cool. Oh, yeah, you didn't say that. Sorry. Just seeing if you're really listening. Although that's the kind of stuff you hear out there. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was created by God, that he was a lesser being. The Mormons say Jesus was created by God, that he was actually a brother to Satan. Islam says that Jesus was a prophet. Christian science says that Jesus was a man in tune with the divine consciousness, which is weird. I read these four things now, the marks of a cult, and I I want you just to think about these for a second. Uh, The marks of a cult, and and these, uh, sometimes they will teach one of these or sometimes all of them, one or more. Number one, the cult will deny the Bible as the only word of God. They'll add other books or throw out the Bible and come up with their own book and all kinds of stuff. This book here, it's got to do with what this says and, and what, it, what it tells us. The declared, inspired word of God is what, what we uh, believe the Bible to be. The second thing is they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, which I, I was just mentioning here, the deity and the sufficiency of Jesus. They will deny that, and you see it over and over and over again. This is where, the, 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 again, the supreme error is, well, who, who Jesus is, what he came to do. Third thing is they deny that salvation is by God's grace alone. They teach that ultimately you're saved by keeping a system of works or rituals or sacraments or some kind of you know, meditation or whatever kind of thing whatever they have come up with in their religious system. Again, that gets back to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And fourthly, many teach that if you do not belong to their particular organization, you will not be saved. Not only that, but if you're not baptized in their particular way and in their particular group, then you're not going to be saved either. All, all, you know against what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. P. 
Peter said in 2 Peter that, that there were false prophets even back then. He says, just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves, denying the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just heresy. It's false teaching. It's cultic. These things go on and on and on. We need to know who Jesus Christ is. Let's turn back to the Gospel of John, and this is important, so I want to look at a few of these passages. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. You need to know some, where some of these verses are. John, chapter 1, verse 1. Kind of a, a, a parallel passage to Genesis, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses will throw another word in there. They'll say the Word was a God. No, no. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And then jump down to verse 14. The Word that we just saw in verses 1 and 2 became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's God the Son who was in heaven from eternity past with the Father, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father sent his Son. How about John chapter 5, verse 18? Start in verse 17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal, what? With God. They wanted to kill him for it. In fact, that's one of the main things that they, you know, put him to death for because they said he spoke blasphemy because he made himself equal to God. They made himself, he made himself equal to God. In Colossians, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. It also says in Colossians, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Hebrews tells us the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You, you know, you don't have to study very long to understand this doctrine. Now, now can we understand in totality the, the understanding of the Trinity that you have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? I can't totally understand that. One day we will when we stand in front of him. But that doesn't negate the fact that Jesus Christ is God the Son, that he came from heaven, from eternity, and he came to the earth. He took the form of man. Fully God. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Fully God, yet, yet, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He knew who he was, but he was not insecure. He didn't have to hold on to it. He didn't have to grasp it. He didn't have to, to hold on to this thing of, of who he was. 
Well, the truth of the matter is, looking at this in terms of an example, thinking about it, well, we're, we're not God, okay? We are not divine. But we should know who we are in Christ. I think that's something that, that, I, that I want to know more about, want to understand even better, and want to grow in. And I think for each of us to know who we are in Christ, what He's done for us, will make a huge difference. Look at verse 7. It says that He made Himself nothing. He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This word, made himself nothing, is, is literally means he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And you go, wow, well, how could God do that? Did he, did he not be, you know, did he empty him, himself of his day? Did he, was he not God anymore? No, no, he, he was always God. He always has been God. He couldn't be anything other than God. But he laid aside his glory. He laid aside... Where he was, he was in heaven with the Father, and he, and he laid aside his rights to come down to earth for you and for me. He emptied himself. Is that something you and I should maybe do sometimes? We're so full of ourselves. I'm so full of me sometimes. You say, no, you can't. That you're, you're supposed to be a pastor. You're supposed to be, like, perfect. You got it all together. You know the Bible like you have it memorized, every chapter, every verse. And sometimes, uh, you know, I remember Bill Kinnaman said he had this big shelf of books and he, and he says, he says, boy, you got a lot of books here. You read all of them? He says, some of them twice. He didn't really answer the question. He didn't read all those books. I don't know all the Bible. I, there's so much as I don't have a clue about. I'll be honest with you. But I understand what it says here, that I'm supposed to have an attitude that's supposed to be like Jesus, and he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He set aside his own rights. What, what my right? Don't you know I have rights? Listen, wife, I got rights. He emptied himself. And this is the attitude that he had. You know, it's so much different when we have to fight and strive and try to make it happen and get my rights and all that as compared to when we pour ourselves out and, and then we pray and we say, God, you're going to have to do something here. And when he does it like that, it's like, it's like night and day. It's like night and day how it turns out. When we have to, like, get in this thing and you get your rights all right. <laughs> but it's a big bloody mess. Why did he do that? Why did he empty himself? He did it for others, for us. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 that he said, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was rich. He had everything in heaven with the Father, and he, he laid it aside. He emptied himself. He came down. He became poor. He came down to us and, and he, earth compared to heaven. That's poor. That's rich. Right? He came down. It says he took the very nature of a servant. Let this mind be in you. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who took the very nature of a servant. That's why I sang that song. You say, oh, that's a little kid's song. Yeah, but it's what we should be doing. I don't care. I don't care if it's a simple song. Well, it's not modern enough. Well, I don't care. I need to pray that prayer. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant. Make me a servant today. Make me a servant. Jesus was a servant. Your attitude, your direction should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Being made in human likeness. What do we call that in Bible, uh, in Bible school? Being made in human likeness. What do they call that? Yeah, that's, that's a form of the same word. The incarnation. Incarnate, same word. Incarnate means in flesh. He, be, he became, being made in human likeness, he came and he took flesh. He was fully man. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. We read it in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we looked at him, we saw his glory. The glory of the one and only. He had to be made like his brothers. Hebrews says, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be made just like you and I. He had to take flesh that he might make atonement for our sins. He was completely without sin, which made him different from us. But he had a body just like ours. He came in flesh so that he might pay the price for human flesh, for the human beings. There were lots of weird doctrines going around even back then, too, that, you know, Jesus, he was just kind of like an appearance. He was just kind of a spirit being. He never really came and took flesh. And that was all kind of like just weird stuff. And, and, and some of these Eastern things that you read about, they got into a lot of weird stuff. And it's the same thing was happening. There's nothing new under the sun. No, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, he came to the earth. He took a human body that he might die in the place of human kind. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? It says he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. The way up is down. You know, when you're having a fight and an argument with somebody, you know what I found? I'll let you know a secret and it's not really a secret because it's right here when you humble yourself things change what does the what does the proverb say a soft answer turns away wrath right when you're screaming at it man it's just like well let's just let's get stay in this thing let's keep this thing going but when you humble yourself and, and have a soft answer things change Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves. It says in, in the scripture that he fights against the 
proud. He fights actually against us. I don't want to be fighting against God. I don't know about you. He says, humble yourselves. Jesus, he humbled himself. And again, this is, this is what he's showing us as an example. And it says he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A couple of things there. were. One is, is that, that he died for our sins. And there's, there's no one else that could ever do that. The perfect lamb of God. No one could die for our sins except me. And when I die for my sins, I go and I spend eternity separated from God because that is the punishment for sin. Death is the punishment for sin, and death is separation. When you die in this world, right, you're separated from all your family, your friends, and the people here. You're separated. When we die, we're separated from our bodies. Eternal death is eternal separation from the life of God forever and ever. That's what it is. Jesus paid the price for you and for me. But in his example there, what about obedience? So we need to learn obedience and be obedient people. And there's even, one commentator pointed out, there's even a cost, there's a sacrifice involved here. It cost him something. Let this attitude, let this mind be in you. It was in Christ Jesus. It might not always be an easy ride. It might cost you something to humble yourself, to empty yourself. One man said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Nothing. You have to count the cost, right, and see. Do you have enough to pay? Do I have enough to, to make it, to go through with it? Count the cost. But nothing could ever compare what God does when, when He lifts us up in due time. Look at verses 9 through 11. We see Jesus was lifted, exalted. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up is down. Jesus showed it to us here. Now, it doesn't mean that you and I get the name that is above every name because there's only one name that can be the name above every name, right? But in one sense, we're united with him, and so we're kind of like tagging along with him, right? In a sense. Don't misunderstand that. But God exalted, someone said, and honored the one that men despised and rejected. They gave him that name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. And again, to get the focus back again, when we start getting all out of focus, we've got to get back to the J-O-Y. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Get back to the name that is above every name. That's the name that's going to make the difference. The name above all names. The sad thing about it, and you and I know this all too well, that people use it as a swear word, but they use it in vain. You know, the name of God and the name of Jesus is used like a swear word. It's used like an, uh, an exclamation just all over the place. Very, very sad. Because what it tells us here is that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That pretty much covers it all, though, doesn't it? In heaven... On earth, under the earth, everywhere, that, that name Jesus. You're not going to get away from it. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 14. We'll close there. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. Romans 14, 10. Well, let's start in verse 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Ultimately, all will acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he really is. Ultimately, that is what's going to happen. Ultimately. But you know what? It's so much better to do it now. So much better to do it now. One man said, those who do not willingly bow the knee to him now will one day be compelled to do so. And another said, one day all will, unfortunately for many, it will be too late for the salvation of their souls. Once we die, it's too late. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. We're all going to stand before him and be accountable for what we've heard about Jesus Christ. Our country was built upon a foundation of Christian principles, upon uh, you know, faith in Jesus Christ. We've gone a long, long way. But one day we're going to have to stand before him and answer. Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, Lord, but Christ also our example, not holding on to his rights, emptying himself, being a servant, humbling himself, being obedient. Let's pray together, shall we?